This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. When SLP Carla McGregor was on this podcast in 2021, she called developmental language disorder, or DLD, a hidden disorder and advocated for greater awareness. Now, the neurodevelopmental condition is receiving more attention, as earlier this year, the Department of Education clarified that DLD could be recognized under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. This recognition came after advocacy efforts by ASHA members and staff. We'll be hearing from some of those members today, and we'll be joined again by Carla McGregor. Now to meet the guests. Tiffany Hogan is a professor at MGH Institute of Health Professions and a research associate at Harvard Medical School. Kelly Farquharson is an associate professor and director of the Children's Literacy and Speech Sound Lab at Florida State University. And returning to the podcast is Carla McGregor, a senior scientist and the director of the Word Learning Laboratory at Boystown National Research Hospital. Since creating awareness around DLD, especially in the schools, is an important part of our guests' advocacy work, I wanted to start by asking them to share a portrait of life for these students. Carla speaks first. I think it's probably easy to imagine how having any condition that limits your ability to learn language or to comprehend language or to express language is going to have impacts on your academics because we learn via our language system. We hear what the teacher says. We hear what our peers say. We're tested on what we learn by writing down what we've learned. So the language system is really integral to academic success. Another way that I think that DLD impacts life for individuals with DLD is on the social end of functioning because, again, it's hard to imagine making a friend or asking a question or resolving an argument if your language system is limited in some way. I think the day-to-day is often filled with challenges on both the academic and the social front. On the Asha Leader website, uh, the three of you wrote an article. You wrote, parents and teachers are often unaware of DLD and are not reliable referral sources for support services. So I'm wondering how children are being referred to SLPs if not by parents or teachers. Kelly? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And also part of the problem is that because it's hidden and because we don't have reliable reporting standards from parents and teachers or for parents and teachers, a lot of these kids actually don't end up getting referred until it's far too late. By far too late, I might say as late as fourth grade, but that's actually rather early compared to some of the families that I've worked with. And I'm sure that Carla and Tiffany have experiences with working with families who didn't receive a diagnosis until high school. Um, So that's, I think, the biggest fear is that there actually isn't a referral or that these children go unnoticed and they slip through the cracks. And so one way in which we can see this manifest in fourth grade is something that's often referred to as the fourth grade slump. We talked about this kind of tangentially in our article um, on the ASHA Leader website, in which we kind of talked about the fact that once the academic curriculum increases in its complexity, that tends to be a time in which these children start to kind of show some symptoms that maybe now make it onto the radar of their classroom teacher. But up until that point, it's not that they didn't have these symptoms, it's that the curriculum perhaps was not exacerbating those symptoms in the classroom, or the child was just really skilled at navigating the classroom without revealing some of their DLD symptoms. 
This is Tiffany. What we're seeing is that when it comes to language, you might think, well, if a child's having troubles understanding and using language, it might seem pretty obvious, but because language is produced by the child and chosen by the child, then it's easy for children to mask their difficulties in language because they choose the words that they use. And right now we don't have a good system for early identification in place. So we have not a consistent screening system. And this reminds me a lot of uh, vision screening. So it used to be thought that, well, you would be able to tell if a child had difficulty seeing because they might squint, they might sit closer to the board. But when visual screenings were put into place, many were surprised that children were discovered to have vision difficulties and they had no obvious signs because they hit it quite well. And I think we're in a similar situation with DLD that if we do not tax the language system early on through systematic screening, then we will not be able to tell which child has DLD just by everyday interactions. Is the masking always intentional or do the children sometimes just think, well, this is the way that I speak and they wouldn't know that it might be different or variation? I think that's a great thought. And my impression is it is not intentional. It's just they're communicating to the best of their ability. And especially because there's language variability amongst their peers too, it's difficult to determine who's having difficulty and who's not based on the everyday language that they produce. And I should also note, as Kelly mentioned, that early educational outcomes are really focused on word reading. And only about 50% of children with DLD have word reading difficulties, meaning that uh, about half of them have no trouble reading words. And because word reading is the focus of the early curriculum, if a child's reading words, that's another way that DLD could be masked because they look like they're meeting some important educational outcomes when in fact their language is still below what we would expect. And we see that revealed later when the language system is taxed. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Carla. You mentioned the social aspect of it. Juliana Hearn recently wrote about her experience as an SLP with DLD on the Ashley Leader website. And in that article, Juliana writes, quote, for me specifically, when called on in class growing up, I was often silent trying to gather my thoughts on what I wanted to say, which appeared to others as I don't know, end quote. And I think that kind of relates to what you're saying. But also, she goes on to write, quote, I also have difficulty understanding sarcasm. I explicitly recall a situation with my friends in high school. We were watching baseball, and I said, you either like football or you like the Yankees. The number of weird looks I received told me what I said didn't make sense to others, but it made complete sense to me. What I meant to say was, if you're a baseball fan, you either really like the Yankees or you don't. But some fans dislike the Yankees so much that they would rather just watch football, end quote. I think this relates to that social part of the conversation you mentioned earlier, Carla. Yeah, I think I think that's a good example. I, I can share an additional example from a younger child that kind of ties the masking behavior and the social problems together, I think. So I was working with a little girl from a family who, it seemed very easy, natural conversational interactions. But as I met her over a few visits, I realized she would often say things in the middle of a conversation like, well, never mind. And if you hear one, well, never mind, there's nothing wrong with that. We all do that if we, you know, change our mind about something or decide it's not important to talk about. 
But I really think in social situations where she's having a conversation um, with an adult or a peer and she isn't processing language well, that becomes a, a crutch or a way to mask the problem but still fit into the group. Yeah. Anyone else have anything to add to that? I just wanted to add that the current setup for identifying services is also very confusing for parents and for teachers because currently you qualify for services if you have a functional difficulty and the qualification can differ according to age. And we write about this in the ASHA leader that the families I work with who are fortunate to have support services often experience experience breaks in their support services. And that can be confusing to them because they, for instance, might receive early intervention services as having a developmental delay and then be dismissed for services and go on to early childhood and then receive services under an IDEA qualification of speech and language impairment and then potentially be dismissed again before they go to elementary school and they might be picked up again as having difficulty as specific learning disability. And parents then are thinking their child has three different difficulties And that can be very confusing for them, too, to understand that that's multiple manifestations of developmental language disorder over time. And they may wonder, you know, has the child outgrown this? Has services been provided, remedied this difficulty when it is a lifelong difficulty? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought this up. You mentioned a recent article you wrote. You recently wrote an article about the clarification from the U.S. Department of Education about DLD's recognition under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. And so this recognition was spurred by advocacy efforts by ASHA staff and members, Kelly and Tiffany. I know you were both directly involved. Kelly, Tiffany, tell me about your advocacy and, and what this clarification means for clinicians and for students. Well, Kelly and I started working with ASHA's healthcare and education policy team And when we first started, we discussed just overall, what are some of the issues that we're seeing in the school setting that might benefit from clarification through policy? And through that process, we really honed in on this gap in services and this disconnect between the labels that are used for children to obtain services or qualify for services in the school and how that's different from the lifelong difficulty we recognize as developmental language disorder. So that really started our conversation. And then we started to think what would be the best way to move forward. Yeah, I agree with that process. And I think when we received the invitation from the Director of Education Policy at ASHA to be involved in this, it was really exciting to think about being involved in something that would create some clear guidance to kind of repeat what Carla said before, this actually isn't new, but it is much more clear now. And I think the importance of that just really cannot be underscored enough because one thing that I encounter a lot in my work with school-based speech-language pathologists is they'll often say, well, I'm not allowed to use a term like developmental language disorder. I can't say that term. And Although I think I do know where that's coming from, it's not the case that they're not allowed to say that. But because that term is allowed and has always been allowed, I think it's really important that now we have very clear guidance 
from the Department of Education that we are, in fact, allowed to use this terminology in legal documentation. So SLPs are allowed to and should be encouraged to use developmental language disorder in IEPs, in evaluation reports, and with parents. It's really exciting to see this guidance because it really just confirms what has always been true, which is that terminology like developmental language disorder is permissible and legally allowable in schools. Carla, when you were on the podcast most recently in 2021, you said, quote, a child with DLD is almost always going to be diagnosed in a school setting. And there's some dissonance or conflict there because making a diagnosis is more a piece of a medical model, end quote. Is this what, what Kelly's talking about? Yes, I think so. I actually, listening to that quote, I, I sort of want to amend it. So if they're diagnosed, it typically happens in a school setting. And yes, so there isn't, there isn't much of a medical stream of care in the way that you might find for some other neurodevelopmental conditions. So that means that most children who are diagnosed will be be diagnosed at school, and they might not ever come up to notice, be referred, be diagnosed in any other setting. And that's why it is critical to share this diagnostic term with parents so that they understand this condition. And and hearkening back to what Tiffany was saying, the categories under IDEA are categories for qualifying for services. They're very broad. They aren't diagnoses per se. And so this would really speak to that problem that Tiffany was laying out for us, the parent who thinks that her child or his child has three different conditions when really those were just three different ways for qualifying a child who has DLD for the services that are needed. And one thing we did when we were thinking about lobbying and changing policy is we looked to other learning disabilities and what they had gained through policy changes. And one of them was dyslexia. In the past, dyslexia was never used in public schools. And then the Department of Education put out a similar type of guidance saying that dyslexia was not precluded from IDEA. And that really helped parents connect with the resources that are out there for support for dyslexia. And that's a big struggle we see with the families we work with is that if you have dyslexia, they can connect with the International Dyslexia Association, for instance, and they can read books about dyslexia and better understand what they might be going through and gain a community. The same for ADHD, but we have the same prevalence for dyslexia and DLD and similar to ADHD. And yet, if a child has difficulty learning language, they have a variable terminology that's used to describe that condition, and it precludes them from accessing these resources, like the one that um, Carla and I have worked on uh, so diligently, DLD and Me, or RADL, R-A-D-L-D.org, to really connect with others who have DLD and learn more about what it is to have DLD across the lifespan. I'm imagining a lack of overall public awareness around DLD may mean that discussing a diagnosis with parents and families can be challenging. Can you tell me a little bit about how SLPs may go about that? Do you have any tips? I think to kind of echo what Tiffany has just said, one thing that makes this process challenging is that parents have likely heard multiple diagnoses already. And so it's kind of clarifying for them that those earlier diagnoses may have been 
indicative of or early warning signs for what we now know is developmental language disorder for that child. And so I think one tip would be to ensure that parents understand that one, these diagnoses that they've received along the way have been helpful in ensuring that a later diagnosis of DLD was possible. And so if not for those early intervening services or early diagnoses, even if they maybe weren't as appropriate as we'd like them to be, or as early as we'd like them to be, still were a stepping stone towards getting to where we are now with the child, which is a firm diagnosis of DLD. So I think that's one part that's an important tip. For clinicians who are new to this process of using DLD terminology or diagnosing DLD or talking to parents of DLD, I also will echo what Tiffany has already brought up with the DLD and Me website. It's a resource that I use a lot as a researcher in this area and as someone who teaches graduate students on the topic, I refer them to the DLD and Me website a lot because the way that things are worded on that website is very parent-friendly, and that also makes it very easy for clinicians or students who are really kind of just learning how to think about this differently. So I would really recommend that website. There's a lot of resources on there that are written in plain language and freely accessible that I think would be my biggest tip to any SLP who's kind of really starting out on this journey of helping parents understand and navigate the DLD diagnosis. We've talked about how this label and the recognition under IDEA could lead to either more services or more timely services. For children, what comes with a DLD label? I think getting a DLD label allows the child and the child's parent to advocate for them across their lifespan. The child ultimately will become an adult and that child as an adult will want to have a better understanding about the ways in which they learn and interact with their environment. Having that label will help them to be able to advocate for themselves and to learn more about their learning profile. Will they encounter stigma? That's a great question about the label. We've thought a lot about this idea of a label as something that will empower you, but also could have caused some stigma. And what we found, at least working with those who have dyslexia and ADHD, it's all about making sure that the person who has the label chooses when best to use that label to really advocate for themselves. And if the label will attain services that support them, then it can be used for good. If it's something that is limiting them or creating lower expectations, that's not what we're wanting to um, see for these children or adults. DLD is perhaps more common than some people listening may realize. In the blog post on the Ashley website, you write, the DLD affects approximately two kids in every classroom. So I'm wondering if it's so prevalent, why is there a need for greater awareness? One thing that comes to mind in response to your question is kind of circling back to this idea of it being a hidden disability. And so I think that that's one part of this that continues to make it challenging. There is the masking that we've talked about that maybe or maybe not is an intentional way to circumvent some of the obvious symptoms in spoken language. That creates a system that that makes it challenging to identify. So our awareness of it is really crucial so that we can help identify it. We can help that other people in those children's lives be aware, helping classroom teachers know that potentially two children in their classroom may have this difference and what that might look like. So that awareness is really powerful towards 
kind of how we started this conversation with the fact that there we don't have reliable referral resources through through teachers and parents sometimes. And so this awareness is really crucial towards that end. I think that's one thing that really comes to mind just in response to that thought. Another thing that comes to my mind is the fact that this condition has been called so many different labels. And so when you don't have a consistent label for a condition, it's hard to really have an overall awareness and advocacy. I'll take it back to ADHD. If ADHD was called attention difficulties, and in another case, it was called executive functioning problems, and in another case, it was called directionally challenged, then you wouldn't know you were talking about the same condition. And we've had that for DLD for some time. So DLD has been referred to in research settings as primary language difficulty or language learning deficit or specific language impairment. It's been referred to in the ICD-11 codes are for insurance purposes as receptive expressive language disorder or a receptive language disorder or expressive. It's been referred to as so many different labels. And we've talked about the labels that have been used to qualify children with DLD for services in schools. And that's a variety of labels. So we don't have a consistent label. It makes it very difficult to advocate, to identify, and to provide support services. Getting this kind of feedback about DLD from the Department of Education is in line with the changes we see where DLD is now recognized in the ICD-11 code and in the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5. And this is also in line with 50 other nations who have uh, decided to use this consistent term. So This is not something that we're only grappling with here in the U.S., but something that we've grappled with internationally to try to advocate for these children using a consistent term. I want to ask you for some translational information here. For the school-based SLPs, what can they share with the teachers that they interact with that might create referrals or acceptance around students who have DLD? There's so many things, but I think a very important message to share with teachers is that children that you might otherwise think of as a naughty child, a child who misbehaves, or an inattentive child, or even a child that's not very smart, these could be the reasons that children with DLD go missed in classrooms because If you aren't aware of DLD and the symptoms, you could mistake DLD symptoms for these sorts of negative behaviors. DLD is not about how intelligent you are. And if a child is acting out or seems bored or inattentive, maybe it's because he doesn't understand what is going on in the communication and uh, language-heavy activities of a classroom. I think it could give teachers a fresh set of eyes for looking at these children and helping them to realize their potential. And I'd add to that by saying that teachers, I think, could feel having this extra knowledge like they can begin to support these children better through collaboration with a speech-language pathologist and recognizing that they have an important role to stimulate language and facilitate peer relations in the classroom for these children. This collaboration, is this a key to getting the children the services they need? Absolutely. Right now, these children have often in school districts have been seen as the children that the speech-language pathologist uh, treats. 
And if there's a difficulty, it's like, well, they'll go see the speech language pathologist, but we've been advocating to have these children better integrated into the educational setup so that a lot of schools have this multi-tiered systems of support and the focus is primarily on word reading within those systems. And we want to see that teachers, along with all of the educational professionals in the classroom and in the school, work together to provide multiple tiers of support services for children with DLD, not just getting services from the speech language pathologist. So we want to see support services for these children integrated across the curriculum and seen as more of everyone's children, not just a child that is supported by the speech language pathologist. Anything else anyone wants to share? Anything we didn't talk about that you're hoping we would? I'd like to point out that DLD Awareness Day is October 20th, 2023, so coming soon to a Friday near you, and I hope everyone uses that time to share information, or maybe if you're new to DLD, to gather information for yourself about developmental language disorder. And I just want to thank the ASHA staff for working with us to obtain this guidance from the Department of Education, and we're very hopeful that it'll make an impact for the children we serve with DLD. I agree. I think the the guidance has real potential to help support those children, but also really to be something that I hope empowers speech-language pathologists to support these children, to make this diagnosis, to find these kids sooner, and to work to create those collaborative relationships with classroom teachers. And I'll also add that as speech-language pathologists, you don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of educating your colleagues and educators in your schools about DLD because we have so many resources available to you on the DLD and Me website and the Rattle website as well. So you can easily download and provide those materials and uh, set up an in-service to share information about DLD. Carla, Kelly, Tiffany, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you, JD. Thank you for having us. You can find links to the article our three guests wrote for the ASHA Leader and find links to the resources we discussed today, like DLD and me. That's on the blog post for this episode at on.ash.org slash podcast. And while you're there, you can read the article from Juliana Hearn that I mentioned earlier in this episode. That's at on.ash.org slash podcast. You can also find that article in the September-October print issue of the ASHA Leader magazine. Also, look for a recent discussion on DLD hosted by ASHA Special Interest Group 1, Language, Learning, and Education. The event features all three of today's guests. Find a recording of that event called Developmental Language Disorder, what you need to know about its name, impact, and advocacy. That's on the virtual recordings tab of the ASHA community. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association. It comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm JD Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.